We are in Acts chapter 1, and I want to read one of the verses there that is of particular interest for what we're doing today, and then we'll have a word of prayer, as I mentioned a moment ago. This would be verse 6. Just have a look at that, and we'll reread that, and then we'll have a word of prayer. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Would you join me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for each person who found it possible to be in the house of the Lord today. And Lord, we are mindful of uh, all the different things that are going on in our our nation and in our society right now. We're mindful of those that are traveling because colleges have determined to close classes either for several weeks or for the balance of the year. We pray that you'll watch over folks that are trying to get back to the United States, our, our citizens and people that Uh, We're caught off guard by some of these announcements with uh, travel restrictions and the desire to get back home. We pray for people who are having to deal with this today. As we already understand, there are lots of terrible lines at the different places where people are coming in, and uh, it it taxes the system when maybe these types of things had to be done more quickly than what people could get in place for. And just pray you give people understanding and continue to pray for uh, our government. We thank you for the good response Uh, that we've seen so far here, particularly Friday, with what the president was able to put together. And uh, just pray you'll bless his efforts. And Lord, we pray that you would restrain those who just don't seem to be able to resist some opportunity to to use some uh, matter like this for political advantage. We pray instead that people would come together and do what's good and best and right for our nation and put the political sniping aside. And uh, we pray that we'll get through this, but we thank you for the emphasis that Uh, The president tweeted out that we should have a day of prayer today. So, kind Heavenly Father, we come into your presence acknowledging that you are the only true and living God, that you have all power in heaven and earth, and that we can be confident in your hand of protection. We don't always understand or know what your purposes are in these things, whether for our nation or for us as individuals. Whatever that is, we ask you to have your perfect will and that your Son will be glorified that the net result will be that people will be drawn back to you and perhaps in a more lasting and meaningful way than even what happened after 9-1-1 where we saw some resurgence of interest in spiritual things and church attendance only to see it uh, go away somewhat quickly. We pray that something would come out of this that would be more lasting. And Lord, if you decide to prolong this or make it more intense to get our attention, we pray for grace, we pray for strength, And again, Lord, we just pray that you'll take care of us and give us wisdom in the choices we make and in all that we do and ultimately to put ourselves in your hand and trust in your your kindness and goodness and your dealings with us. Now, Lord, we've gathered today because we have interest in hearing from you, and I pray that the Spirit of God himself would come to uh, take away from us all the distractions and all the different things that it would be so easy for us to stray off and think about at a time like this things of of some perhaps importance, but yet we know that the most important thing for now is to see what you have. And I pray that you will bless in the sense that you are the minister here today, the prime minister to our hearts and lives, and uh, that the Spirit of God will bring to us each that which we can use, that we need. Uh, Lord, you know us as individuals, and we trust you to take whatever is said today and go beyond even the meditations, thoughts, and prayers of the preacher and use them in our hearts and lives. And always, Lord, we pray that we'll be soul conscious. We pray that if we have uh, anybody here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior or for some reason lacks assurance of having his sins forgiven or a home in heaven, 
Oh Lord, always we want to pray that you'll be drawing men and women and boys and girls to yourself here in this assembly and across the the world as people meet together and the word of God is proclaimed. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, for I pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, I would like to thank you so much for your interest and attention. I guess maybe you could always say you didn't have much choice. But uh, over the last 38 messages or so, they haven't always been consecutive, but most of them have, where we've been looking at this series, they asked him this, and looking at questions that we find in the Gospels, and just a couple that we find in the book of Acts, that people asked of the Lord Jesus. And just, you'll hear me say this today for the final time, we've sort of seen them compile into a couple of different groups that are easy to remember. The disciples asked a lot of questions. That's good. That's right where we are. So by looking at questions that the disciples asked, we kind of can see ourselves, and that's a big help to us. Jesus had a lot of questions that came from his opponents, his detractors. Some of those are quite interesting in how he handled himself in those situations and and in the enlightenment and information that he gave in response. Yet people asked, thirdly, Jesus' questions from all walks of life. And uh, those can be quite interesting as well because, you know what, that's kind of the business, if I can call it that, that we're in. We encounter people outside of our normal acquaintances. We encounter people in restaurants, other different places. And uh, many times as they observe us or we can talk to them, there's an opportunity. And many times people have questions about spiritual things. So that's kind of what this series has been about. And I, I appreciate your interest and hope that it's been a blessing to you. You would think that when we got to the book of John, we would be done with this. But in point of fact, there are a couple of questions that we have recorded in the book of Acts. Two, at least, that I know of and are both worth considering. One we considered a while back, right before we had the Lynn Croxton revival meetings, not quite a year ago. I dealt with the one from Acts 9-6, where Paul, Saul, his name was at that point, was asking Jesus, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's a great question for us to be burdened to ask the Lord. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And this morning in verse number 6, the other one from the book of Acts, and then we'll be done with this. By the way, uh, after this, we have three Sundays that I'll be here until Easter, and we're going to be looking at three messages that I've entitled, The Places of the Passion. And my interest will be in just using these messages to try to be a blessing and hope that they will... Uh, prepare our hearts and get us ready for the Easter time together. But look at verse number six, and there we find an interesting question. They say to Jesus, when they were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time again restore, restore again the kingdom to Israel? So it's kind of interesting that we're looking back up in the context of the verses that we read earlier, and right at the end of verse number three, it tells us that a great part of what Jesus was teaching and speaking to them about, look right at the end of the verse, says that he was speaking, this would be during his uh, 40 days uh, post-resurrection ministry before he returned to the earth, but he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So it's apparent from that that in spite of how good a teacher the Lord was, they still had some confusion and some questions along this line. And, you know, that's really still true today. I think as people read the Bible, even though you encounter a subject like the kingdom, especially in the the Gospels, it seems like on every page you will find some reference to this. And really all through the Bible, 
there is teaching concerning the kingdom of God, which in its simplest essence is really nothing more than the rule or reign of God. But particularly when you look at the scriptures from a dispensational perspective, you get into all kinds of questions about exactly what's going on with the kingdom. And uh, the disciples still had some questions and even some confusion about this, so they take the opportunity to ask the Lord, and I think it's a great opportunity for us. It's a great opportunity for us to just review some of the things that I think are clear in the Bible uh, and I hope will be helpful to you about this subject of the kingdom of God. And what I would like to do is talk about three three parts of that today. First of all, we're going to talk about aspects of the kingdom, and then we're going to be looking at patience for the kingdom. Now, you don't have to listen during that part because nobody likes to hear about patience. But the third thing that we're going to be talking about is the work of the kingdom. And that really, I hope you will, tongue-in-cheek, I hope you'll listen to all what you can here today. But first of all, I want to talk a little bit about aspects of the kingdom. Folks, let me say this. I think one one of the greatest things that will help you as you read and encounter this subject of the kingdom in the Gospels will be to realize that there are different aspects of the kingdom. And as I said a moment ago, the moment you consider the fact that the kingdom reduced to its simplest aspect is simply the rule or reign of God, we realize to some extent that's always existed. And it exists today. Aren't you glad that there's a power higher than we, especially when we encounter all of these difficult things that are really out of man's control Even though we don't know what God's purposes are concerning the coronavirus or what it is that he has, it's just nice to be able to put your head on the pillow at night and know that you can appeal to God and that your life is in his hands and that uh, our lives don't need to be gripped by fear. They need to be governed by facts and they need to be governed by faith. And we have faith in God. And that's something that really so many people around us in the world, that's I think why there is so much fear And so much hysteria when these types of things happen is because people don't have faith in God. And we don't need to be gripped with fear or hysteria. We need to respond to facts and we need to be governed by faith. And that's what's going on here. But the disciples are asking about this question. And it's pretty natural to understand why they ask this. If you think about this a little bit, these are Jewish boys. And I I, I just mean to give you the context of the scripture. These are Jewish men. And they've been raised with the background. The scriptures they knew were the Old Testament. They knew about all the promises that God had made to Israel concerning a future kingdom. We think about the time when God's rule and reign will be visible on the earth. And they knew about about all of that. And they knew that the particular promises had been made to Israel. And yet here it is. It's obvious the crucifixion has taken place. It's obvious that the departure of Jesus, he, he had prepared them for this in his upper room discourse. It's obvious that that's imminent. They might not have known the exact moment or day, but they know that that's imminent. They know that he's not going to be bodily with them anymore, but they look around, they don't see any kingdom, at least not like what they were thinking about. So I have no criticism, whatever, for the disciples. I can understand completely why they asked this question. But Jesus, of course, and thinking broadly now, when you read the Gospels, thinking broadly about the subject of the kingdom, uh, and I'm going to just limit a couple of examples that I give you now to Matthew's Gospel And uh, this makes good sense, because if you think about this, Matthew was the gospel particularly written to the Jews, for whom this is obviously a very pressing subject. It was very confusing to the Jews how that they were looking for the Messiah, but they were not expecting the crucifixion. They were looking for the kingdom. 
And so this is, I think, why it was so, one of the reasons why it was so easy for the fickle crowd to embrace Jesus on Palm Sunday and hail him as the king of the Jews, only to forsake him a few days later when it became apparent that what he had in mind was not going into the temple and getting rid of the Romans and expelling the Roman government and setting up a, a, a Jewish kingdom, but he had in mind establishing the cross and what became really necessary for any of that to be in the first place. And uh, so they have questions about this. Well, Matthew's gospel, just to see how important the subject of the kingdom is, just think about this. When Jesus introduced... So let's go back to Matthew, and we're just going to thumb through a couple of verses as we move forward. This won't be hard to do. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, and I just want to show you a couple of verses and make three statements so that you can see how important this subject is. Um, when Jesus began his public ministry, as we tend to think of it, his preaching ministry, Matthew 4.17 says this, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent. For what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And more literally, this is the idea of the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And of course, we understand that it had drawn near in the person of the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom of heaven is drawn near. And this became really the impetus of Jesus' message to repent and believe the gospel. The fact that God was visiting his people, the kingdom of heaven is drawn near, and calling people to repentance and to believe the gospel in order that they might become citizens of the kingdom. If you want to talk about it that way, we simply talk about being born again, right? And that, that's also quite biblical in its, in its way of putting things. Turn to chapter 5. So not only is this really the centerpiece and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, but in the greatest sermon that Jesus preached, I mean, we, we typically characterize it that way. It's what we have recorded anyway. Who knows what else he preached? But Matthew 5 through 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount, and you're not going to read that. The whole theme of it is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. So, for example, um, you hardly get the thing started. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, look at verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you'll go through and just have verse after verse, and it becomes apparent that this is what he's really talking about here in this sermon. All right, let's go to Matthew chapter 13, and uh, I'll read you one verse here, but this chapter is very well known because in it you have what are called the seven parables of the kingdom. So when Jesus was talking about the kingdom, he gave these seven parables, and they comprised uh, the centerpiece of his teaching on the subject. Verse number 11, let's look at that verse together, Matthew 13, 11. Here's what it says. Uh, Having He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. So what do you learn if you look at this, and what do you learn if you read all throughout the Gospels about aspects of the kingdom? Well, you learn, and this really helps you to, to understand what's going on, that there is the present aspect of the kingdom, and there is yet to be a future aspect of the kingdom, which was really what the disciples were thinking about when they asked this question. But we're certainly living during the present manifestation of the kingdom, which, of course, is the church. See, you have to kind of determine and understand in the Bible, this is a really important subject, perhaps more so than what you realize, because as you wrestle with these promises and these truths in the Bible concerning the kingdom... 
I don't know if you know this or not, and I won't bog you down in a theological class, but you basically have three schools of prophetic approach to the scriptures, all having to do with what do we make of the kingdom. And I'm saying all this this morning because I just want you to realize how important the subject is and to give you a simple aid to approaching it, uh, particularly as you read the New Testament. It's a little bit more self-evident in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Well, you first of all have, if you've heard of this before, you first have an approach to dealing with the scriptures, the prophetic scriptures, that's called post-millennialism. Now, all of these are going to talk about millennial something because the millennium refers to the kingdom. What are you going to do with this subject as you encounter it in the Bible? Is there still a future kingdom that's going to happen on the earth? So what, what, in, what in very simple reduced form do the post-millennials believe? Well, that, that view of scripture has kind of fallen out of vogue now. Um, that had some resurgence here in 20, 20, 30 years ago, not so much now, but that, that was a particularly popular approach to the kingdom in prophetic scriptures back during the 18th and 19th centuries where you had all of the, the wonderful missionary uh, outreach and successes of the church. And what people essentially believed was that the church would be successful in preaching and bringing in the kingdom of heaven to the earth by the, basically the Christianization of the world. Well, I don't believe the scriptures teach that because I think that towards the end of this age, the scriptures make it clear and clear. We aren't going to succeed in making things more like God. If anything, evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived is what is portrayed. But two world wars sort of took that idea that we were going to somehow progress to the point that we would simply usher in the kingdom and sort of kick that really in the head, and not too many people really espouse that approach to the scriptures today. Then probably the one that's also pretty in vogue today within a, a number of different circles would be what's called amillennialism, and the, the A in front of it negates it. So the whole idea behind this approach to the scripture is that all of these promises that we encounter concerning a future kingdom they have been fulfilled in the church. And so there really won't be a literal kingdom as we think about it and as the disciples were thinking about it. There won't be that because all of these things have been fulfilled in the church. I can't agree with that for the simple reason that it, it denies us the opportunity. This is just the one reason I'll give you, but it basically tells us that when we encounter these things, we have to spiritualize them instead of allowing them to have their plain sense to us. And whenever you have to depart from the plain sense of Scripture and impose ideas on it, theological systems on it, you're, you're sort of on thin ice. It's better that when the plain sense of Scripture makes sense, seek no other sense. And if you let the words and the promises simply have their natural meaning, you come out with a literal kingdom, which is, of course, what you've been taught all these years in this church, and I fully believe that's correct, is the approach that's called premillennialism, the pre simply means that we understand Jesus Christ is coming back before the kingdom and he will come back to set up the kingdom and that there will be a literal rule and reign on the earth. Millennium means a thousand years. Where did we get that? So why did they, they, they sort of name those systems all millennial something? Well, it's simply because in the book of the Revelation it's, we're told that that period is a thousand years. Now, so when we get to that, that's what you have. And when you get ultimately to Revelation chapter 19, um, you look at 
what it says here about how this is all going to climax and end. And it says in verse number 11, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Verse 15 says, 16 says, and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is the description towards the end of the Bible when Christ comes back to establish this rule and reign, this literal kingdom on the earth for a thousand years. So it will help us to understand that context, when we read different verses that talk about the kingdom, and by the way, when Jesus gave these parables, the mysteries of the kingdom, you can certainly see these aspects here because he talked about, for example, the parable of the sower. All right, we've talked about that here, and you've heard lessons on that. Is that something that's in the future? Does that apply now? No, that's the present aspect of the kingdom. The sower went out to sow. That's the job of the church. That's the great commission, right? We take the message to the ends of the earth. The sower went out to sow, and in the process of doing that, he encountered four types of hearers, four conditions of the heart into which the seed of God's word falls. That's the present aspect of the kingdom. But yet in other parables, he talked about the fact the wheat and the tares. It's part of what's going on during this age, but it climaxes with the angels removing those tares and ultimately with the Lord himself coming back in judgment, right? You know that from the scripture. So you, do you see what I'm saying about how you have the present aspect of the kingdom and you have the future aspect of the kingdom and if you know this, and then you simply let context be your guide to determine what's being described in the verse. Um, let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. You, you might still be in Matthew, and I wanted to show you. This is where say, some people then raise the question, well, what's the church have to do with this? Well, the church and the kingdom are not the same thing, but they're overlapping concepts. All right, the church is the present aspect of the kingdom, and this is why Jesus said, verse 18 to Peter, and I will say, I also say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We understand the church was future even at that point because the church really didn't begin till the day of Pentecost, and that's what's going on right now, isn't it? He's building his church. And when people are born again, they're born again into what? The kingdom of God. Well, in the language of the Sermon on the Mount, that means they would become citizens of the kingdom. But we don't talk so much that way now because we're living during, we understand this, the church age. You know, some people, when they, when they use dispensational distinctives, some people refer to this as the church age, and some people refer to this as the age of grace. And I much prefer the terminology, the church age, because I don't like the implication that God was dealing in other dispensations with man in any other way than by grace, because it's the only way he can deal with people. People were never saved by the keeping of the law, even in the Old Testament. People have always been saved one way and only way, and that's by grace through faith. So I prefer the terminology of the church age, but when you look at this, he says, and yet, yet he then says to Peter in verse 19, and I will give unto thee the keys of the what? Kingdom of heaven. So do you see what I'm saying? We're living in the church age, but it's an overlapping preparatory concept to the idea of what will one day be. The church age is now. It's the present aspect of the kingdom. Jesus said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So it's not like when Jesus left the earth 
God put the kingdom of heaven on hold, right? And just suspended things. It's just that things kept right on flowing. This was God's program for now, and this is how he is administering his affairs and carrying out the program of redemption on the earth during this time. Doesn't obviate, doesn't do away with the fact that Jesus is coming back. By the way, wouldn't it have been a perfect time when the disciples asked this question of Jesus, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Wouldn't that have been the perfect time to set them straight if the church was going to replace that? But he didn't do that. And so once again, I think we come back to the whole idea. And I think this is all I better do with this. There's a lot more that could be done. But I want to remind you of a story I may have told. I can't remember. But uh, thinking about the future aspect of the kingdom and using that verse from Revelation, I really like the story about the seminary students that used to go and play basketball at a public school gym because their seminary didn't have uh, a gym. And, you know, being seminary students, they were naturally kind of interested. There was an older gentleman there, kind of white-haired, and he, he was the janitor, and he, he would be on duty when they were there. And they noticed that he would just sort of sit off to the side quietly. He had a book he was reading. And they were curious what he was reading. Well, he was reading the Bible. But it was really interesting. One of them finally decided he would go up to the old gentleman, just ask him, what he was reading. Well, the way the man answered the question was really interesting because he didn't just say, well, I'm reading the Bible. He said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. Well, you can imagine that really got these seminary students' attention. And the one said, oh, you're reading the book of Revelation. Do you understand it? And the old man said, yeah, I do. The seminary said, well, what does it say? He said, it says Jesus is going to win. Well, that's, that's the big picture. That might not get everything all sorted out that we need to sort out if we're going to go through and do a chapter-by-chapter chapter study of the book, but it basically gets the concept. See it? And that'll be all in the future yet. So I, I'm sorry if we took a lot of time with that, but it's just kind of necessary to get your feet on the ground. Let me see what I can do with what I have left, the time and the points. Okay, now's when you stop your, stop your meter and think about lunch or something more palatable, because I'm going to talk about patience for a moment. Patience for the kingdom. What did Jesus say? He said you have to wait. You say, where do you see that? Well, let's just go back to Acts chapter 1. He didn't say it's not going to happen. He said you're going to have to wait. In so many words. So Jesus said this in verse 4, And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem. But what's that word? Wait. I hate to wait. Do you? I just don't like to wait. In fact, no matter how quickly we seem to speed up some processes, I find myself still impatient. Going there in the morning, I'm the only one in our house that drinks coffee. I have it set up the night before. I go in and punch the button. I find myself, I wish this thing would hurry up. Not like I'm brewing a whole pot. I know, I know people that set that thing going and they got to brew a whole pot. I'm thinking, I hope they have one of those things where you can pull the thing out and it stops and get your first cup. Because I'm just not really too patient. The other day we had a lady at the house and, and I asked her, I said, would you like a cup of coffee? And she said, I'd love a cup of coffee. Well, I wasn't going to take the time to, so I used a Keurig. I kept thinking, well, when will this thing be done? Yeah, I bet if you time the thing, it's probably only 10 or 15 seconds, but it just, I don't know. I, I, 
I will grant that I'm not a particularly patient person by nature, but I keep working on it. And then I think what uh, the Lord also said, this is the, it's almost like you could call the book of Acts Second Luke. Because you have the gospel and then you have the follow-up to it. Well, in chapter 24, so it picks, Jesus picks up right on what he had said before. Luke 24, 49, he says, And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye. Going to have to wait in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. Well, neither they, I think, nor we find this lesson particularly easy. He also told them something else. He said, you know, there's a lot you don't know. That's kind of tough sometimes, too. Do you ever think that way? I'm all the time thinking that way. And then I, I have to kind of think to myself, well, God's got, he's got the wisdom. He knows what I need to know and he knows what I don't know. But boy, I would really like to know this. You ever that way? I really like to know what's going on. And when they asked Jesus this question, he not only told them, you're going to have to wait. But he said in verse number seven, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the father hath put in his own power. Now, here's something that's really neat. It's a minor technicality, but it shows just how accurate and precise the Bible is. When it says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or seasons the Father hath put in his own power. You get the very next verse and it says, but ye shall receive power. Two different words. Same in English as what we see in our translation, but in the original what he's saying, he uses the word for authority, power in the sense of authority at the end of verse 7, not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you see, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You'll receive this dynamic. You'll receive this dunamis, this power, this dynamite from on high. You have to wait till the day of Pentecost has fully come for that to happen. There's also two other words here in the verse, times and seasons. And again, Greek is kind of precise with this because time is chronos. That's chronological time. So we have that word in English, right? Chronology. Chronos is chronological time, so you're kind of looking at the whole roadmap to it, whereas seasons has to do with periods within that. And he, he says, you know what? There are things that God just does not reveal to us. Let's don't maximize thinking about that. Instead, let's think about what we do know. Because God has given us, think about this, we believe this is God's full and sufficient revelation, right? If there were something more we needed to know, it would be in here. So what God has given us to know is here. I've got more problems living in the light of what I know than what I don't know anyway. My hand's full with that, do you? So, but neither of these concepts are easy for us. They really, the second one boils down to the first. If you don't know something you want to know, it, you have to wait. Because now we see through a glass darkly, now, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then shall we know even as also we are known. So I'm faced with a now then proposition and so are you. And I can't get out of it and neither can you. Doesn't really help to be impatient. You just drive yourself nuts. It's better just to leave it in God's hand, and that's why he put Psalm 27, 14 in the Bible. 
Wait on the Lord and be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. I don't like to preach about it because it's hard to do. Easy to preach and hard to implement. But that's where we are. And even with this coronavirus, there's a lot we don't know, not just in terms of what we know about the actual virus. I do know where it came from, contrary to what... (laughs) what the Chinese are trying to tell us now. We do know where it came from. I like the way the president answered that question when he was asked that in the press conference. We know where it came from. (laughs) I think we kind of have that down. But what his purpose in it is, we're going to have to wait and see how that plays out, aren't we? Just going to have to wait and see what God has. Do you ever think how much of life is spent with waiting? You wait for a doctor's appointment. I've gotten to where I know most of them I go to now. That's why I take a, my Kindle or something else along with me when I go, because I know full well when I go in there, I'm going to have to wait. I, my ophthalmologist in Huntington, I already know when I go there, I usually ask for the, one of the earliest appointments in the morning, even though I have to be there sooner in the morning. I'll go there at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning and change around my devotion time a little bit just to get out of this, because otherwise it's going to be an hour's wait. And I'm not going to, in most cases, I don't feel like leaving it to chance that they're going to have a magazine there I'm interested in or that would help me to read, so I try to take something because I don't want to waste my time. There's other things I can do, even if it's information I'm gleaning by using my cell phone. Sorry I mentioned bad word but you can use it productively. But we spend time waiting for the doctor. Logan, you're spending time waiting to graduate. Well, we're waiting, right? We have to wait. We spend time waiting to be accepted to college. We spend time waiting for our first job offer. We spend time waiting for the bank to give us a loan. We spend time waiting for the right time to start a family. We spend time waiting for our test scores. We spend time waiting for loved ones to come to Christ. When we're younger, we spend time trying to find the right man or right woman to marry. You spend time sometimes waiting for someone to buy your house. You spend time waiting for your prayers to be heard and answered. Well, you don't have to spend time waiting for them to be heard, as long as you use pray them, but you have to pray sometimes time for them to be answered. You spend time waiting for someone in the family that's away from the Lord to come back to the Lord. So we might just as well grab hold of a scriptural concept of waiting and buckle our seatbelts and hang on. Let God do his thing because he knows what he's doing. And that's the way it is now. It doesn't mean the kingdom isn't going to come. It will certainly come. Let's look at the last thought. Take just a few moments. The work of the kingdom Folks, here's the point. You know, a delay doesn't mean that there's nothing to do. This is what I was trying to say a moment ago. Just because you have to wait on the doctor doesn't mean you can't use your time. And just because we're waiting on the Lord to return doesn't mean we shouldn't be productive. In fact, it's precisely the opposite of that. Let's look at a verse. Um, Luke chapter 19. You'll find it's interesting. This is mentioned right in the context of the kingdom. It says in verse 11 of Luke 19, For, and as they heard these things, he added and spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because 
they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. They were looking, so if I'm going to use what we tried to learn this morning, what, what aspect of the kingdom is that reference referring to the future? They thought that this literal kingdom of Jesus ruling and reigning, the Messiah ruling and reigning on the earth was going to immediately appear. Jesus said, no, it's not like that. You're going to have to wait. He said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered unto them ten pounds and said unto them, waste your time while you wait. No, he said, occupy till I come. Folks, that's how we need to view life. We need to view life as an opportunity to do the work of the kingdom. That's entirely an appropriate biblical phrase to use, the work of the kingdom. That's what we're doing is the work of the kingdom, even though you and I are living in the church age. The church has a commission. It's called the Great Commission. And there is certainly the work of the kingdom yet to do. Where do I find this in this passage? Because he said, you're going to have to wait, but... That's what it says, right? In verse 8, but. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. Folks, you realize there's still work to be done in just about every one of those four divisions? I mean, yes, you can look at the book of Acts as sort of a, a development of those four things in, that are mentioned in that verse both in Jerusalem where the gospel first uh, was proclaimed and, and went out like spokes from a, the hub of a wheel to Judea and Samaria. But there's still work to be done in our Jerusalem. There's folks around here need the Lord, don't you agree? We can't give up on that. That's why God has local churches. And there's certainly work to be done to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's still people who haven't heard. And we don't know how long this is until Jesus comes back. But we do know that Jesus did promise to return. And that we're to be busy and to occupy while he is waiting to return. Speaking about waiting, it would be a, a rather human way to look at it, but... Did you ever think about Jesus is waiting to return? I don't suppose he has the problems with that that we do. And it would be a completely human way of describing it to say, I'm sure he's anxious. In one way, I'm sure he's not. I'm sure he's just waiting exactly for... But, you know, it's going to be a, a moment of glorious triumph when that trumpet sounds and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. And that program of tribulation judgments are unleashed, is unleashed upon the earth, ultimately climaxing in the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Because folks, I'm telling you, I'll leave you with this. This is one of the great strengths of viewing the Bible from a premillennial perspective that the earth never was meant to, nor will it be, as a lasting monument to the triumph of evil. All what we have now around us are the works of men, the continual buildings of towers of Babel. 
not going to end that way. It's going to end that way with a period of time in which the lion lies down with the lamb. And children play where the snakes have their den. And the ox and the ass feed the same way. And Christ rules and reigns on the earth. Like the fellow in the gym said, Jesus is going to win. It's wonderful to know the Lord and to be his child, to be a part of his kingdom and to be entrusted with a small dimension of that work. And may God encourage us and bless us in that.